Amen. Join me in Luke 15. Last week, I introduced to you one story that has three parts. And it seems like there are three stories, but really they're just one story and they happen inside the context of some certain events that make the story have its meaning. Apart from the events, we could probably get some good out of the story, but we wouldn't get what Jesus was talking about. The events that are happening that set the stage for the story are found in verse 1 and then in verse 2. Let's look there in chapter 15 of Luke Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What was happening is that they were upset that this kind of person was accepted, was welcomed, was affirmed as having been made in the image of God by this man who laid claim to being the Messiah. They kind of had the idea that if he was really a holy man, if he was really a prophet, this is not the kind of people he would choose to spend his time with. So they began to criticize him because they hated these people. These Pharisees and these scribes had in their heart a hatred, a disdain, a judgment of these people who were identified as sinners. They were people who were irreligious. They didn't keep the traditions. They didn't obey the commandments. They didn't identify with any religious group. They simply lived life estranged from God grasping at whatever they could to try to find some kind of satisfaction. And all of a sudden, they hear Jesus speak and they say, wow, this is different. And they're attracted to Him. And they literally throng to Him so that the word all is used in the beginning of this passage to say, there's all kinds of these folks, all types of these folks, masses of them, they're thronging to Jesus and He's welcoming them, he's, he's eating with them, he's conversing with them, he's hanging out with them. And so they were angry. So Jesus sets them up, the religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, he sets them up by telling them some stories that are just one story in three parts. What he did last week was cover the first two parts, and it was the parts about The woman losing the coin in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 15. The woman lost her coin. It was very valuable to her. She got a broom out, swept the house clean until she found, you know, moving the furniture, whatever, to to find this coin. She finds the coin and she tells her friends, I've lost this coin. I found it. Let's all rejoice together. And Jesus said, oh, when one sinner repents, there's more rejoicing in heaven. And then he goes to another story. He tells a story of a shepherd. And that shepherd has a sheep that wanders off. He leaves the 99 in the open, protected pasture. And he goes 
And he finds that one lost sheep. And he comes back, he's got the sheep on his shoulders, and he calls his friends and says, ah, my sheep was lost, y'all rejoice with me, I found him. And, and let's throw a celebration, Jesus again says, and God rejoices, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And, and there's a lot of celebration. And so he sets him up with that story. And then he jumps into another story. And the story is about human beings. first story is about a coin. People being happy, you found your coin. It's valuable. Yeah. Uh, second is a, a sheep. You know, you've lost it. It's valuable. You search for him. Yeah. Great. And then there's this human being. But the human being is the bad guy in the story. So it's like, in all of our stories, we like the bad guy to kind of get punched in the face at the end. Right? Isn't that kind of why we watch Captain America? We watch Captain America because at the end of the the movie, he's like smacking down whoever it is. Iron Man, same thing. You know, they're vanquished. We like the bad guy in the story to get a legitimate smackdown at the end. That's what we're hoping for. So as this story unfolds, the bad guy turns out to be sort of the central character and main point of the story, and everybody's offended by it. Because the bad guy is considered a bad guy for a lot of reasons. Let's roll into those reasons today. With your outline, look first at the younger son's request of his father. The younger son's request of his father. He comes to his dad. and Robin, just walk through these with me real quick. I'll just kind of give you some cues. Next slide. Tim Keller kind of summarized what was happening between the younger son and the father in this. And Robin, as I go, just start clicking forward because there's some red highlights as I read. It says, however, this division of the estate only occurred when the father died. In other words, the son was about to say to his dad, I wish you were dead. I really don't want you. A little further, he says, Here the younger son asked for his inheritance now, which was a sign of deep disrespect. There was nothing that the son could have done to the father that would have been more disrespectful than simply saying, I wish you dead. I am parting from you and I am going to treat you as if you're already in the grave. Because nobody was going to get their inheritance until death. This is how he's treating him. So we go, to ask while the father still lived was the same as to wish him dead. The younger son was saying essentially that he wants his father's things, but not his father. So what he was saying is, is I value material things more than you, dad. I value these earthly treasures more than any kind of relationship with you. And he goes on and says his relationship to the Father had been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth, and now he's weary of that relationship. Here's the deal. He wants to have the stuff without his dad watching what he does with it. That's what he's looking for. So he says, you know, Dad, if you were out of my life, I would enjoy this stuff that we've got a lot more than I enjoy it with you around. So I tell you what I'm going to do, Dad. I'm cashing it in. And so it says, he wants out now. Give me what is mine. And so he breaks with his dad. And and in the, the most disrespect that you could heap on a man in their culture, he just heaps it on his dad. And he says, verse 12, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now it's important. Look in the next part of verse 12. It says, and he divided. And you've got a lot of different words there. Some say living. Some say wealth. 
It comes from a word that we use in English in certain words. How many of you heard of the word biology? How many of you heard the word biosphere? Okay, this is the word bios. It means much more than your cash. You see, in that day, your wealth was tied to two kinds of holdings. First was your land. And in the Jewish mindset, it was not that the land belonged to them. It was that they belonged to the land. Because what land was this? It was the promised land. So they belonged to this beautiful land that had been a part of their forefathers. And so having that land, possessing that land, was identifying with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with Moses and the people of Israel. It was identification with them. And so when it says he divided his wealth or his living, it means he divided his life, his bios. This was his life, this land. The land of the inheritance. The land of my fathers. This was it. And it was so important. But he had to sell it. He had to sell it and cash in one third of it. The other kind of holdings they had was livestock. Livestock was a major league asset. And he had to sell off the livestock. He had to divide the inheritance so that he sold enough that he liquidated one third of his total assets. Why a third? Older son gets two thirds. Younger son gets one third. He only has two sons. Going to be divided three ways. And so a third of it is cashed out. And literally, this guy leaves with his pockets stuffed with gold. Stuffed. And so he asks his dad for his life to be cashed in, his honor to be absolutely just destroyed. And then he asks his dad to accept his rejection. Now, back in the day, you would think he'd have just taken him outside and put a really good whoop down on him. That would have been such a different ending to this story. You want what? Son, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you what's coming to you. You know, that's kind of how the, if, if the story was going to flesh out the way we want it to, that's how it goes. But he doesn't. He gives it to him. So, number two, the father's response to the younger son. He divides his living and he hands it to him. And he lets him go. He sets him free to exercise the foolishness of his life. And the son does. So you see number th- three. The younger son's reckless life. What does he do in his recklessness? Well, it says in verse 13, not many days later, that means he hurried. When he had uh, gathered everything together, he went on a journey into a distant country. The further I can get from you, Dad, the better I can enjoy what I got. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. His brother's going to characterize it later with the word prostitutes. This guy dives as deep into a sinful lifestyle as he can. He wallows in that lifestyle. And in his recklessness, number four, the reality of his choices begins to set in. What happens? It says, 
after squandering his estate with loose living. Verse 14, now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. So reality is setting in. Spends everything, famine sets in, he's in need, he attaches himself. Notice, to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, in our mindset, this isn't a big deal, feeding the pigs. We're kind of going... Ooh, I don't like the slop. The slop would be nasty. That's not how the Jewish people are thinking. We don't have an equivalent. We just don't. There's nothing in our culture that we could go and service that would be as repulsive in the story as the pig would be. There's just not any equivalent here. Some of you, it could be like snakes. It would be like you end up at the snake farm and every day you have to handle snakes. How many of you just hate snakes? You're like Indiana Jones. No, not snakes. Okay? You, know, you just, not, not snakes. Okay? Or some of you be spiders. You see spiders and you're just like out of your mind. I don't know. There's no real equivalent. But it's the grossest thing to them to imagine. And so he's there. He's attaching himself to this guy. This guy raises these animals. And he has to go and service these animals by feeding them and keeping up with them. And it's just gotten to the point where what looks good to eat. Listen, I'd be thinking bacon. Wouldn't you? I'd be thinking bacon. He can't think bacon. That's not where they're at. He looks at the pig and it's like, that's, that's not, uh-uh. So he's looking at the pods. I'd be thinking, hmm, well, sausage? But he looks at the pods and he says, man, I just want to eat the pig slop. I want to eat these, this stuff that he's... And so he's so broken and so hungry. and He, he comes to himself and reality sets in. Well, one of the neat things about the reality is that all of a sudden, all the things that he thought were going to make him happy, fulfill him, satisfy him, all of a sudden he sees they're they're not going to do that. And then, guess who comes to his mind? My father. So, what happens here? It says in verse 16, nobody's given anything to him to eat, verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. So what comes to his mind? All of a sudden, he remembers the nature of his dad. He had experienced that nature before. Growing up in the house with him, having been around him, even the gentleness with which he released him and took upon his own self-humiliation in order for that freedom to be given, the father had been nothing but benevolent, loving, and good to him. And so the father comes to his mind. And so, number five, the younger son returns. He comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to head back home. Now remember that in the story, the younger son is the bad guy. All of the people that are hearing the story, you've got two groups out there going, hmm, I hate younger sons, or I am a younger son. you got a group of people who said, man, these are the people that we can't stand. Why does God even tolerate them to live on earth? How does He... I remember years ago, somebody saying... Um, and, and this was, I hated this statement. It really infuriated me. But it, somebody said this about America. They said that if God doesn't judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I want to tell you something. If anybody ever tells you that, don't listen to them. God doesn't need to apologize to anybody. God is just and merciful. 
Don't ever beg Him for His justice. You don't want His justice on you. You want His mercy. That's what you want. A promise. You want His mercy. So when this guy is told in the story, the Pharisees and the scribes are going, what a punk. I mean, I know what his dad's going to do. His dad's going to tell him what a low-down creature he is, and that if he doesn't do this and this and this and this and this to deserve his father's love, he's going to keep him out of his... I know what he's going to do. All these Pharisees, they know what they would do at the end of this story if it was their son. But it doesn't go like that. And this is what frustrates the religious people of Jesus' day. The story goes the opposite way they think. They think he's going to get a good comeuppance, but he gets something so different. That's where we get number six. The father's reception of the younger son. I want you to look at how it lays it out in the Scriptures. Pick up in verse 20. It says, and he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That means that he was looking for him. He's looking. I don't know how often he looked for him, or if he went and stood on the front porch and looked down. So I don't know. But he saw him a long way off. He was looking for him. And then it says something immediately about the father. It says, when he saw him, he felt Compassion. Not anger. Not vengeance. Not wrath. Not judgment. See, the Pharisees, they were looking down their long religious noses at all these sinful people coming to Jesus. And they were saying, you can't. They don't deserve to get into the kingdom. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve salvation. They don't deserve a relationship with God. They just deserve wrath and judgment and punishment because they're sinners. Yet Jesus is welcoming them and teaching them that God's forgiveness is freely bestowed by faith alone. And so it's all coming to a head. And all of a sudden the Father's nothing like they think He'll be. He feels compassion and he ran. When we travel to Ecuador, I tell our folks, adult Sachila don't run. Except when they're playing soccer. You'll see them run. And we played a little baseball with them and they ran when we played baseball. But adult Sachila, they don't run. So I tell folks, if you see a Sachila man running, you best fall in behind him. Because he's either headed for something really good or running from something really bad. So you just fall in with him. Why? They don't run. It's just not part of their culture. In this day, noblemen, landowners, landed gentlemen, they didn't run. That was a sign of childishness. Several things had to happen for them to run. They had to hike up their, their robes because they wore the long robes to protect them from the heat, the elements, the sun. And, and they had to bare their legs, which was just not... That's why you hear in the Old Testament, gird up your loins. You think, what does that mean? It means tie up your garments. And so, when they got ready to run, they had tied their garments. Well, this guy took off running toward his son, and he embarrasses himself and the whole family. Why? Because he feels compassion for his son. 
And he runs to him. And all the Pharisees, they're hearing this story saying, what? When he gets to him, he's going to go, pow! Yeah, baby! But he gets there and he kisses him. I love that. He kisses him. I know dads who still kiss their grown children and their grown sons. It's a beautiful thing. He kisses him. And he hugs him. And it's nothing like you think the story's going to be. Why is this story so important? We all know how sinful people can be. That's not surprising that we would squander ourselves. That's not surprising. That's nothing new. But what's new is that this is how God feels. This is how He feels. God feels compassion. God feels compulsion to run toward us. God feels and grabs and kisses and holds. Jesus is not surprising anybody with the story of how sinful humans can be. But He's surprising everybody with how loving, merciful, compassionate, and tender that God is. That's the surprise of the story. And so number seven leads us to just a simple truth. The Father's rejoicing. It's interesting, when we set up these stories with Jesus' story, people go, Oh yeah, the lady, she found her coin. <laughs> cool, man. We just kind of, we're, we're, we're into that and say, yeah, glad she found that. That's a big deal for her. And then the shepherd, like we would all go, oh yeah, that's great. But this third story, you see, coins and sheep don't make a fool of us. They don't make us angry with their actions and behaviors. They don't embarrass us. They don't, Build history with us in which we have feelings that could even be called hatred. They don't have all that. Sheep don't. Coins don't. But then you throw a human being in. And all of a sudden people, rather than going, Oh yeah, she found she found a coin! Oh, the sheep is back! We go, what's he doing with that punk? Why is he treating him so good? He doesn't deserve that. Why, he squandered his wealth with the harlots. He he embarrassed his dad. He was just a complete, complete failure as a son. And No, something's wrong with this story. Listen carefully. Nothing could be more right than this story. Because this is the Gospel. The Gospel is that Christ receives sinful people. When they come to Him in faith, 
There is a rejoicing. There is a compulsion within God towards happiness. Hard for me to comprehend that in God over me, over sinful people. But the picture is that this is what God's like. And so He says, verse 22, quickly bring out the best robe. Whose best robe? Who's got the best robe in the house? Dad. So we're putting Dad's robe on him. Put a ring on him. Put sandals on him. He's not a slave. Bring the fatted calf. We're going to have a major league celebration. For this son of mine was dead and he came to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began, Landon's translation said celebrate, but I just love this older New American Standard. They began to be merry. (laughs) They began to be merry. It was something of rejoicing for the family, for the neighbors, for the servants, everybody involved. The Father's joy trickled down to the people. I'm going to ask you to bow with me because I want to challenge you with two thoughts today as we close. The first thought is in this story, which of these two groups do you tend to identify with? Do you tend to identify with the group of people who can't believe that God would let these kind of people into His kingdom? That He would welcome this kind of... Squanderers. These kind of people who would be sexually immoral, ethically broken, insulting of their parents. Do you you identify with the kind of people that just tend to criticize others and see how sinful they are and wonder, why does God even put up with them? Why doesn't He just send judgment right now and just come down and crush all those sinners? Why didn't He do that? That's that's where the Pharisees were. You see, they saw in themselves a kind of morality that made them feel that they had attained acceptance before God. And it made them judgmental of other people. It made them devalue other human beings. Made them want other human beings to not be accepted by God. And to be left out of the kingdom. There's another one here. Do you identify with the broken? Can you see yourself as one who has squandered what God has given? That has wandered from where God is? So my first question is, who do you identify with? If if you identify with the squanderer, I have some really good news for you. God is presently waiting for you to come down the road to home. And He will do just like this story. He will have compassion on you if you come to Him by faith in Christ. He will rejoice in you. He will hold you. He will be All that this picture entails, as a loving father would be, he will welcome you. 
I have some good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins and was raised from the dead. And Jesus welcomes you. He, even right now, invites you to Himself. To confess your sin, to repent of it, and to embrace Jesus' forgiveness because He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead for your sins. He is God in human flesh. He is the Savior of the world. He's the King that deserves all allegiance and obedience. This is Jesus. And He is welcoming you today. Would you come to Him? On the other side, if you identify with the Pharisee, if you identify with the judgmental attitude, I have some good news for you. As we'll find out next week, God is still welcoming you. He wants you to repent also of your self-righteousness. And know that He would welcome you in and forgive you and rejoice with you over your salvation. That's the good news of the Gospel. It saves self-righteous sinners and self-gratifying sinners both. And He welcomes both in repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. As God stirs your heart today, would you stand? Would you come? Would you come to Jesus?